0: This is Mornings with Simi. So today marks the 50th anniversary of the break-in at the Watergate Hotel that eventually, a couple of years later led to the resignation of President Richard Nixon. It's one of those topics that I remain fascinated by to this day. And you know what? It still has repercussions to this day. It changed so many things. It changed how people view the government, changed how people view the press. It influenced, you know, film, it influenced television, books. I mean, you name it. So we thought, let's talk about the lasting impact of this. Joining us now is David Greenberg, a professor in the history of journalism and media studies at Rutgers University. David, thank you so much for being here.
1: Sure, glad to be
0: with you. I'm sure you're going to be doing a lot of talking about Watergate today. What is it about this story, do you think, that still fascinates us?
1: Well, you know, I think this was really a classic case of executive abuse of power, uh, where by the end there was really very little doubt about the severity of it and Nixon's uh, guilt in it. And it, it goes to the heart of what Americans have always feared, about their government, that we would have sort of a too strong presidency, a too strong executive. This, after all, goes to our founding stories of, you know, the war of independence from Great Britain, uh, establishing a Republican democracy rather than a monarchy. So whenever we get a, a president who's trying to accumulate too much power in the White House, uh, especially by illegal means, uh, it taps into those deep uh, fundamental fears in, in the American public culture.
0: Uh, let's talk about the actual history of this here. So where did this go wrong? Because these, these kinds of tricks and things that were they were doing, they had been doing for a few years at that point. So how come this one went wrong?
1: Well, you know, it was probably inevitable. There was so much criminality, uh, illegal break-ins, illegal wiretaps, Um, other kinds of illegal activities. So it's probably inevitable that sooner or later uh, these were going to come out. But the incident that triggered it was a burglary at the Democratic National Headquarters in June of 1972, 50 years ago today. And when the burglars got caught, basically they were sloppy in their work and a a security guard found out there were intruders in the building and the police came and arrested them. Uh, That Began the unraveling. It, it, it led directly to the White House. In time, the White House staffers led directly to the President's Attorney General, his White House counsel, his chief of staff, and then that led to the President himself.
0: So, how has politics changed then since then? There seemed to be you know, they they almost seemed surprised every step of the way that reporters were even asked, how dare you ask about these, these situations, how dare you ask these questions. Uh, what changed after Watergate?
1: Well, you know, one thing that happened is the press had been very uh, instrumental in exposing the Watergate scandal, particularly Carl Bernstein and Bob Woodward of the Washington Post, but, but other reporters too. And so thereafter... Uh, reporters became increasingly adversarial and confrontational uh, toward presidents, toward authority in general, um, sometimes to the point of kind of scandal-mongering, trying to whip things into a scandal or a crisis that maybe were a lot more uh, innocuous. So we've had a very kind of combative adversarial relationship between the press and the president, and it's led, I think, to a loss of authority, a loss of credibility. Uh, It's become much harder for presidents to kind of maintain the lofty status that they often did Say in the years of World War II and the Cold War before Vietnam and Watergate.
0: Right, because it had turned out though that for a lot of there were a lot of situations during those times, right, where the press had looked the other way for questionable behavior, and then after Watergate, it felt like they were not going to do that ever again.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, looking the other way is maybe a loaded way of putting it, there was a lot of behavior that was considered properly private, uh, sexual behavior and that kind of thing, which, you know, people just didn't think it was the job of reporters to be splashing all over the newspapers. Um, So what happens after Watergate is you get real genuine inquiry into executive wrongdoing of the type we saw under Trump, of course, and uh, George W. Bush, but you also see a kind of misguided inquiry into private sexual behavior. And, and, and all kinds of things, drug use, you know, draft evasion, all kinds of things become sort of fodder for the press's uh, scandal mill. So there's, there's good and bad. You know, it's good we have uh, a dedicated and uh, uh, aggressive press corps, Uh, On the other hand, there have been any number of incidents where I think most people would feel the press and the media go too far in whipping up scandal.
0: Yeah, And let's talk about what happened with Richard Nixon. So he resigned as he was going to be impeached. But it seemed to me that in years later, that he kind of wished that he hadn't done that.
1: Well, you know, I think he knew at the time in 1974, that he was cornered. You had even The right wing of the Republican Party, people like Barry Goldwater, the former presidential nominee, coming to the White House to say, you have no support left. The the bottom has fallen out. So he really had no choice. He would have been removed from office by the House and the Senate had he not resigned. But, of course, it's natural to have regrets. He never could quite own up to his wrongdoing, so he always said, oh, you know, my mistake was that I didn't burn the tapes he had recorded himself, uh, incriminating himself, and this kind of thing, and it sort of spoke, I think, to his immaturity of character. He was really unable ever to own up deep down uh, to what he had done.
0: So today there's going to be, I'm sure, a lot of reflection about that. But do you think, has has anybody learned the lessons of Watergate, David? Have the politicians? Have the media?
1: Well, part of the problem with trying to take lessons from history is people, you know, different people with different politics, um, claim different lessons. You know, I, as I said, the press is the lesson that we, we dig harder. Well, yes, but sometimes that can go wrong. There were lessons about transparency and, and, you know, the United States Congress did pass several reforms uh, that were, you know, largely to the good. Um, But, you know, each generation in a way has to kind of learn the lessons and each politician, I think, has to learn the lessons for himself.
0: Clearly. All right, David, thank you so much for that this morning. Sure, my pleasure. I appreciate that. David Greenberg is a professor, history, journalism, and media studies at Rutgers University. He is a Watergate specialist, and he has been studying this for a long time. And today does mark the 50th anniversary of the break-in at the Watergate Hotel. It's why you're seeing Watergate stories everywhere these days. This week has kind of been leading up to it, and there will be a lot of coverage on TV today as well. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, I once saw the village people in concert at the Commodore and you know what? sad about that is it actually wasn't that long ago. It was probably about, I don't know, in the 90s, I guess, at some point, but still great show. Uh, Von Palmer's with us this morning. Vaughn, can you say that? Can you say that you've seen the village people in concert?
2: I saw the village people in concert in an absolutely packed, sweating, screaming, enthusiastic Pacific Coliseum. Okay, you win. And the after party was something else, and I'm glad that uh, there were no... phone cameras in those days.
0: <laughs> I would love to see pictures of Von Palmer at the village people after party. If anybody still has some, we a love affair,
2: as I recall. So oh. that gives you an idea what, uh, anyway,
0: well, today it would be the Roxy. So not much yes, has changed. Village
2: people. Yeah. Let's,
0: let's talk about our, our Watergate um, fascination that you and I both have, because you, you remember this vividly too.
2: Yes, I do. Uh, so my, my, f- um, yeah, the break-in is 1972. And as you know, it it got some coverage or anything, but Nixon went ahead and won the election in a landslide, and it wasn't clear the story was going to develop. And then, in 1973, uh, as the case became unraveled, you got into hearings uh, in the U.S. uh, Senate, and all these characters – And they were characters parading through the hearing room. And the whole thing unfolded like a thriller because you were always getting new details. So my first summer as an intern at the Vancouver Sun, we had a little tiny black and white cheap television in the newsroom. But it was turned on to the Watergate hearings. And as long as we did our work, we were also allowed to watch it. And it was riveting. It was fascinating. And again, as the story unfolded, the second year, the thing ran for two years. It was sort of like season two was the hearings to impeach Nixon. And those were in 74. And we got to Nixon resigning in August of 74, my second summer as a Vancouver Sun intern. So, uh, yeah, I remember it.
0: <laughs> that's so vivid for me too I don't remember the hearings I was too young but for me it was the, the single
2: number one day that I really remember yeah. is this guy that none of us had ever heard of a guy named Alexander Butterfield oh, uh, yes. gets on the stand and they start talking to him and uh, he just in passing says well you know that would be on the tapes and everyone goes the tapes and at that moment we discovered that Richard Nixon taped himself In the Oval Office, everything was on the tapes. We got into a battle over getting access to the tapes. The tapes had the evidence that destroyed him. Uh, They eliminated any doubt. Had there not been the tapes, um, I'm not sure Nixon uh, would have uh, been impeached. I'm not sure they would have yeah. had enough evidence to do it.
0: That is so true. And you know what? The fascination continues because I've been watching this show, Gaslit. I know oh. you're watching Gaslit. It's got Julia Roberts. It's got Sean Penn. It's great. It's a TV show. People haven't checked it out. They absolutely should. You're enjoying it, right?
2: I'm enjoying Gaslit because, you know, having been absorbed in this thing for 50 years ago, is there anything new under the sun? Gaslit actually provides a new take on the Watergate story. And my favorite line in it so far is the two FBI agents standing around talking about this conspiracy that they're trying to unravel, and these guys that are in charge of it, and one of them says to the other, what if these people are just morons? (laughs) Look, the thing that really comes through in Gaslit, there's two things that are really important. One is that Nixon had the election in the bag. He didn't need to do this. Exactly. He won with the biggest majority in modern times, right? There, he did not need, they didn't need to do any of this. And the second thing is, it's a boys' club. The real, clear voices in Gaslit are two remarkable performances by women Martha Mitchell who is the truth teller played by Julia Roberts mm-hmm. and the woman who marries John Dean Moe no. uh, Betty Gilpin I believe is the yeah. actress yeah they they're the only two that had a good handle on this thing the boys club up to their necks in this thing crazy sexist racist incompetent and stupid <laughs> I so mean, it's a great story for that reason and i think it offers sort of anyone today that goes into it you might need to have the wikipedia entry beside you to double check some of the names and yeah. players but it it really is um, a new take on a very old story um, that will make you laugh a lot, yeah. and also have you scratching your head that a president who won one of the biggest majorities in American history he was to
0: destroyed do this. by this. Yeah,
2: just destroyed his reputation.
0: But also the fact that he even felt that he needed to do it—you know, oh. it was just that rampant paranoia. It is. There's so many things about it. It's Shakespearean, right? Which yeah, is why it's I think Shakespearean.
2: It, so I'm a big fan of Shakespeare, and Shakespeare's. Tragic, quote, heroes, protagonists are brought down by their own weaknesses, jealousy, vanity, ambition, whatever it is. At the time, people said about Nixon that it was Shakespearean because Nixon was brought down by his own really paranoia, uh, the sinister, dark aspects of his character, and all of that is on parade in the completely unnecessary Watergate break-in and cover-up.
0: It's fascinating also, Vaughn, to extrapolate that to today's, you know, political situation. Yes. Is politicians of all stripes, of all levels, they, they don't seem to learn those lessons, do they, though?
2: No, because it's human nature, right? I mean, it's the quest for power, um, the feeling, and Nixon always had the feeling that everybody was out to get him, and, and some people in the media out to get him, right? I mean, there's an awful lot of uh, reporters uh, were on a very good uh, basis with Democrats. They were Democrats themselves. So Nixon did have enemies, like many paranoids do. But, uh, you know, at the end of the day, uh, the quest for power and all that, uh, what you can get away with is still there. Um, the news media have changed a lot, too, right? I mean, you know, there's, there's an awful lot of reporters have basked in the glory of Watergate, and even still though are. they never did anything like that. Yeah. Uh, You had an interview recently about the January 6th hearings with uh, your correspondent in Washington, D.C., and he was talking about how all the networks were carrying the January 6th hearings, except Fox News was not carrying it. And that's one of the big changes. When the Watergate story took off in 1973, there were three big television networks, Every city had a major daily newspaper, and there were two big news magazines, Newsweek and Time, that were very influential. They all covered the same set of facts. They all covered the story from the same investigative, truth-telling angle. The big difference now is social media. um, The media is spread all over the place. There are other narratives out there that are very dominant. And so, uh, the, the collectively, the news media is bigger than ever in terms of able to spread information. But there are competing narratives out there, and you sort of wonder, in this media world would Nixon have survived? Entirely possible that he would have.
0: I think so, too. And, and speaking of politicians not learning lessons, uh, we are signing ourselves up to do some business with FIFA, coming to town. I know people are very excited about this, but I I'm, I'm still remain, as much as, as excited as I am about this, I am also a little bit skeptical about the economic payoffs here.
2: Look, uh, you know, I'm not a big sports fan. Uh, I covered the 2010 Olympics. I was critical. I didn't think they were necessary. I... Thought the numbers were cooked. Uh, and in my view, the thing about that I learned in the Olympics is they inflate the benefits in their bene- cost benefit analysis and they understate what it's going to cost. Gordon Campbell contain- claimed initially the 2010 Olympics were going to pay for themselves. Ha! Right. So <laughs> the thing about uh, at the time, I, did, I still I read then, and I still read The Economist. The Economist magazine has been very good on the subject of these kind of events. They are about the feel-good factor for your community and your country or your province. Right. They make you feel good. People have a good time. They are essentially a party. Have a good time, but don't kid yourself that about the cost-benefit analysis. They're not telling you how much it's really going to cost. It yeah. always ends up costing more. And the benefits, they always overstate them.
0: Thank you for that, Vaughn. <laughs> Have a good weekend.
2: Bye-bye. Cindy.
0: That's Vaughn Palmer. This is Mornings with Simmy. Well, you know who else is very excited about Vancouver hosting the World Cup or a couple of games anyway in 2026? It's our next guest. It's Vancouver Whitecaps head coach Vanni Sartini. And you know what, coach? Maybe, maybe Italy will be in that World Cup. Hopefully,
3: (laughs) hopefully,
0: yes. (laughs) I'm just teasing you, of course. Yeah, okay,
3: okay. Well, you know, (laughs) it was was, a... uh, since the announcement was a current, uh, it was a common theme from everyone to me. So it's okay. Aw, no
0: see, now I feel bad. So you're saying yesterday everybody's been making fun of you since that happened?
3: Yeah, but you know, when, when you deserve it, you deserve it. So it's oh, okay. No,
0: you don't deserve it. The team, I'm sure, will be working very hard to make that World Cup here in Vancouver. No uh, what was it like then to hear that? I mean, you you live... You work soccer. What was it like to be in the community to hear about this announcement yesterday?
3: Well, you know, it was very exciting and uh, well, uh and I was very happy when when there was the announcement because it's uh it's going to be a, a big event for the city. It's the biggest sport event uh, in the world and uh being part of it is uh it's going to be very exciting. There's going to be a lot of fans coming here. Uh, you know it's it's going to be huge for the city and and also for the future generations of uh, Canadian player and when you when you're a kid uh, you're always uh, dreaming of uh, uh let's say playing for your country in the World Cup and uh if you have the chance to see it uh, live uh, uh in your city probably this dream it's going to become even more real to you so uh i think it's going to be fantastic to have uh, some games of the 2026 world cup here in vancouver
0: i think it is also going to be fantastic but let's talk about soccer today that would be the vancouver whitecaps bit of a setback with the last game but tell me about how you're going to get everybody refocused
3: well you know it's uh, uh, something sometimes happens those kind of games and uh, in the long-term scenario uh it's not even uh, i would say the the worst thing because it's uh you know, we were coming from a period that uh, everything was going well, and uh, everything uh, we were mm, going to the right direction. And uh, getting back to the, I would say, reality sometimes can it's it's going to be it's going to be good to to humble ourselves and to uh, make ourselves, I would say, centered again on the fact that uh, if we don't follow our task 100%, if you're not intense from me one in every game it's uh, it's going to be really hard and uh I hope that we we learn the lesson and uh we work this, this week to not to make the same mistakes that we that we did in Seattle because tomorrow in Dallas that's a very important game.
0: Right so this is your third and final trip to Texas for this season um and you know what you've done pretty well down there haven't you
3: Yeah you know it's uh um we we didn't do very well in Austin it was okay in uh, in um in houston so it's uh uh we need to uh let's say uh do a good game because fc dallas is a very good team but uh we beat them like a month uh, a month ago here at bc place so we know that we have the quality to to make the three points uh so that uh, that game of a month ago it gave us also the confidence that uh Uh, it's going to be possible to to win.
0: Right, and you've got some players back because players are back from playing those international games.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. We have uh, basically a full roster that is very important because uh, not only we have a game Saturday, but also Wednesday um, uh, we'll we'll have a a very important game at BC Place uh, for the semifinal of the Canadian Championship. So um, that will give me the possibility to uh maybe do some rotation of players and and play players that are 100% uh, fit in both the games. so I'm I'm really happy that uh, we are basically back at uh, at full capacity in terms of roster
0: all right well good luck we're going to keep our fingers crossed
3: Fantastic.
0: Thank you. Thanks, Vanny. That is Coach Vanny Sartini, head coach of the Vancouver Whitecaps. So, Whitecaps heading into action uh, this weekend down in Texas. And then they have to shift focus quickly, as the coach mentioned there. They've got a Canadian Championship semi final clash uh, against York United FC. That's taking place on Wednesday. And that is the first of four straight home matches at BC Place. And remember, you can listen to all of these fantastic Vancouver Whitecaps games on AM 7. This is Mornings with Simi. Yes, it's time again for our Keep It Local series, and this is where we're urging you really at this time of year to keep it as local as possible, help support our local farming industry, because you know what? They need the support. So this week, our focus has been on farms that were really heavily impacted by last year's floods and and getting them to tell us their stories of recovery and what that has been like. So our next guest is a dairy producer from Abbotsford. His farm, Vetterly Farm, was right in the middle of the flood zone in Sumas Prairie, and we are very happy that he is here to talk about recovery. It is Richard Bosma. Richard, thanks for being back with us.
4: Good morning, Simi. Thank you for having me on.
0: How is the farm doing?
4: Well, it's uh, good news and bad news, I guess. Like we were able to return to our farm one month after the flood happened, and in that way, business as usual. Um, we are now in a situation where we have to buy all our hay and uh, we're facing record prices for that. And then uh, on top of that, we're having, uh, just like everyone else out there, a very, very tough spring. Um, We've only got one-third of our corn planted. Uh, Some that is planted is uh, in water. And so, yeah, the pain uh, seems to continue.
0: Oh, boy. Uh, So the land hasn't dried out enough to get a good planting season in yet?
4: Well, every time it gets, Close to being dry, it rains again. So, uh, no, I, I don't want to be all negative. Uh, the sun is shining today, and uh, that puts me in a better mood.
0: Uh, the, <laughs> <That's> the,
4: <good. laughs> the the cats and the calves and the cows are all fed and milked, and uh, yeah, we uh, we keep going. But uh, there are uh, concerns on the horizon.
0: It sure sounds like it. So, Richard, what was recovery like then, and getting production back up and and running? That must have been incredibly difficult.
4: Well, the cows, uh, you know, in some ways it was rather seamless. I, you know, there was lots of uh, trauma here and uh, adrenaline when the cows were rescued, but you know they were at another farm within uh, 20 minutes. Uh, well, I would say half an hour half an hour they were at another farm and, and eating feed. The farmer had, uh, the host farmer there had feed down for them. And so, yeah, it was, you know, it took them a little bit to get adjusted to their new surroundings. And then when they came back, uh, well, they came back to familiar territory and again, you know, we had feed ready for them and so on. So I, I don't want to minimize it. it. It, uh, production, you know, dropped a little, but came back and, uh, um, it's what we do, and, and uh, you know, every day we look after these animals.
0: And what kind of impact did it have on the animals? That's a lot of moving around, something that they probably weren't used to, but the animals sound like they were okay.
4: Yeah, generally okay. Um, part of the rescue was that, uh, you know, if you remember the timeline, there there was a point where the pumps were set to fail, and uh, we we couldn't even... Uh, finished the rescue, we had to wait till morning and uh because of the efforts of volunteers uh, that were sandbagging all night long and so on the uh the pumps were saved, and we could go in and rescue the rest of our animals the next day. so they were standing in in water uh you know three and a half four feet of water, and so we are now still getting some incidences of pneumonia, and the pneumonia shows up in these animals uh. When there's another stressor, um, you know, some animals, you don't see any sign of uh, lung issues at all until they have a calf. And then, uh, you know, the stress of having the calf. I mean, we look after them as best we can, you know, that they have the right environment to calve in and all of that. But uh, uh, any mother will tell you uh, having a, a baby is a bit of a stressor.
0: That is very true. It is a bit of a stressor. Uh, has that f- affected production at all, Richard? Yeah. Um,
4: on, a, on an animal that, you know, I'm, I'm talking about 2 or 3% of animals have had uh, a little bit of pneumonia. And so, yeah, it does, it would affect uh, an animal at some point. Um, it, You know, it's not, it's it, I'm going to just say it's a minimal, but it is there. Yeah,
0: Right. So what do you think about the public support, Richard, in terms of the people who really wanted to help and still do want to help out?
4: No, we were, uh, you know, helped out on our own farm. And, and I know I speak from a personal level and then for the industry. But, you know, personally, we had the help of a lot of friends and uh, the community, Um as an industry, there were a lot of donations made to the BC Dairy, um, you know, flood um, uh, relief really fund that they had going. Yeah, I think there was almost a million dollars raised there, and um, that was um, that was actually uh, divided up amongst the affected producers very quickly. Uh, so that was amazing because that was much better than any government response that we've had uh, since then.
0: Oh, so you're saying that you could use a little more support still?
4: I don't know if you heard me say that or not. We're we're counting on some government programs and uh, they have been slower to... You fulfill what they've promised. I guess is what I'm trying to say.
0: Hmm. Okay, so still waiting on that. We'll have to ask some more questions about that. Uh, what about the public, Richard? Do you was this an opportunity? Do you think for the public as well to learn more about the importance of BC's local industries, like the dairy industry?
4: Well, certainly. I you know I I think the message is that we're all connected, and you know I mean we're seeing that as as. Uh, The entire world is connected. We're affected by uh, fuel prices right now because of something that's happening uh, far away from us. But, um, yeah, people need to realize where their food comes from. Here in the Fraser Valley, uh, you know, it's almost a billion dollars worth of food that comes out of Sumas Prairie and uh, the flood. Did about a billion dollars worth of damage. And, you know, it's hard to get governments motivated to spend uh, a few millions <laughs> to, to right. begin fixing the problem.
0: So, Richard, how can the general public help, though? How can those of us who are listening help out?
4: Well, there, you know, I think the message is the same for, uh, right from our uh, BC Minister of Agriculture right down to the producers that uh, just continue to buy uh, local food uh, in the dairy uh, case it would be looking for that blue cow logo i I can't emphasize that enough that is uh, milk produced here locally uh, and and some of it does come in from another province uh, but it's canadian canadian product Uh, and we got father's day coming up uh, maybe all you listeners out there buy your dad a tub of ice cream for father's day
0: Now that I can definitely support. I'll buy several because that's usually how many we go through in our house. Uh, Richard, thank you so much for joining us this morning. And listen, best of luck.
4: Okay, thank you.